0: So I've been excited about this series. The, the Feed the Creature series has been packed full of, I think, uh, some takeaways that, f- that could change our lives. And so I want to get into that, uh, the, the next topic for our series. But before we do that, I want to talk about a couple things that we're going to do this morning, and then we're going to review a couple things that we've learned so far. I know breaks sometimes can have the food coma effect, and we can kind of forget where we've been. I felt that a little bit. Um, so first, I want to tell you, we're going to spend time in a couple passages this morning. Uh, continuing to talk about worship and what a life of worship looks like. And, uh, and we're going to spend some time figuring out maybe a little bit about how we're wired individually and how that matters to the group. And so that's what I'm excited about today. Uh, we started by defining worship. And worship happens when we're here as a group singing songs, but it also happens everywhere in our life if one specific thing is true of us. And that's our definition of worship. If we treasure God above all things, then what we're doing in life becomes worship, which I think is pretty awesome. Um, and we also learned that as part of our worship, there are times and places where things are actually attempting to be treasured above God in our lives. Maybe things that we've decided we want in our lives, things that have taken maybe a place in our lives that are of too much importance. And that God's going to try to root those things out of our lives, and we have a model for that. Jesus, in, in his uh, preparation for ministry, is in the desert. And he's being tempted by the enemy, and he shows us what it looks like when we become people who say, you know what, I treasure God above everything. Even things I could justify, even things that are good or fine, can't be in a place above God. And so he gave us this understanding that we we kind of put it this way, Uh, Jesus wouldn't cave to something he admires less at the cost of what he admires most. So for Jesus, he admired God the Father and his will for his life so much that nothing would ever threaten that. Nothing else could even come close. So he said no to all those things, and we sometimes need to do that in our lives. We need to say no to things and reprioritize them. We've also learned that as part of God changing our heart in this process of worshiping him, that we can become people whose lives look dramatically different from the inside out. And so we learned that in Scripture, God talks about kind of this change being uh, from a heart of prostitution or selling ourselves out for things that aren't worth it to a heart of holiness, which is a heart that looks a lot more like his. And we talked about the fact that one of the prime responses of our heart to God's change in us is compassion. And we talked about the fact that the early church, one of the first signs that God had gotten a hold of their heart was compassion for people. Pastor Tom said it this way. He said, they began to give a rip about the things God cared about. And we want the same thing for ourselves. And so we actually got a chance to practice that last week. And I want to share a couple things with you that took place. And numbers sometimes fail to tell the whole story. But, man, these numbers to me are exciting. And so I want to show this This to you guys, 2,830 stories were walked through and is a part of our compassion experience uh, last week. Now, some of that was people who got so into it, they went back for more, which is awesome. That's fine. But either way, that's that many times that we put ourselves in a situation to hear the true story of a child from around the world and what their lives look like for better and for worse and how God brought hope to them. That's a big deal that we would put ourselves in that situation. Then this is the the part that I'm most excited about. 226 children rescued. Their lives forever changed, forever a different trajectory, hope that they didn't have before. And here's why I love that. A week and a half ago, two weeks ago, you didn't even know those kids existed. And now you're a part of changing their lives forever. So I thought it'd be cool not only that you would know those facts and figures, but that you could celebrate and give each other a hand for that. That's awesome. Listen, when that kind of thing happens, you have to start wondering what's going on in a group of people that would take time and energy out of their their days, not just to walk through. Many of you all volunteered. Some of you had to reorchestrate your budget to figure out how this was going to work. I want to know what's going on in a group of people whose lives start to look like that, who will give them their time, their energy, their money, their priorities to let compassion rule and reign in their heart. I, I love that. And so we talked about the fact that our church isn't just about sponsoring children, which is amazing. It's actually about becoming people in our communities that care about the people in our lives that God cares about. And we know that just in this county alone, there's 96,000 people who don't know Jesus or don't have a home like this for their faith. And in, in Belton and in Williamson area, there's 24,000 people within five miles of our campus at Pleasant View that have the same situation in their lives. And there are people in the surrounding areas that are on top of that number. And if we're people who treasure God above all else... We're going to start to treasure the things he treasures above that too. And so we become people who love people who are far from God, people who don't know yet that they could bump into Jesus in their lives. And so for a church like that, and this is what a is based on, we start to feel like, wow, good things are happening. But you guys know we're not the people that came up with that, right? Like we're not the first people to think about a church like that. We're not that smart, right? In fact, a church like that was God's plan all along. And the fact that he's continuing to work that out in our community is is a part of his ideal. He's been up to that for a long, long time. And we know this because in the first century, there was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church he was pastoring. And he was saying, hey, I'm at a distance now, and so I can't see you yet. But but here are some things you can practice to be the kind of people that God designed you to be as a church. And we see the roots of this stuff happening and the outflow of Jesus. And so I want to introduce you to, to Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. In chapter 3, he starts it like this. He says his intent, meaning God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Paul just packed a ton of stuff into that short phrase, but this is what I think he's saying. Paul says, right now, and this was in the first century, some of these people would have lived around the same time as Christ. He's saying, right now, God is trying to show that his plan is is wise. It's genius. His plan for the, for the world is so amazing. And that plan was accomplished in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And now, part of his plan is that you all, the church, would display his wisdom to the world, and not only just the world, to the universe. I don't know how that works. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds like a big deal. God is trying to show his wisdom through his amazing plan in Jesus Christ to everything in the universe. And how's that going to happen? Well, Paul tells us a little bit more about how that's going to happen. In him, this being Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So part of his plan, lived out through Jesus Christ, is that we as people wouldn't relate to God necessarily as this big, mean guy in the sky or this distant force, but that through Jesus Christ, we as people could actually approach God the Father with confidence and freedom, which sounds like it would be a, a, quite a life-changing experience. And Paul's saying, this is part of how we display God's manifold wisdom, his genius in his plan, is that we can approach God with freedom and confidence. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Apparently, there's some stuff happening to Paul that that isn't good. He's suffering, he's being persecuted, he's in trouble, and he's saying, don't worry about that. Instead, understand that this is part of your glory. This is part of what's taking place in your life. It's uncomfortable for me, but it's being accomplished in your life. That's pretty amazing. And then Paul shares this prayer that he has for his people. And he says, because of all this, all this, the plan being displayed, and God executing his plan through Jesus, and you all showing his genius to the universe, because of all that, this is what I'm praying for you. I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his Spirit in your inner being. So he wants us to be empowered in our inner being by God's Spirit. For what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That our faith would be strong, and that I may I pray for you that being rooted and established in love, you may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So we're to approach God with confidence and freedom. We're supposed to live out of a life that is overwhelmed with the understanding that God's plan wasn't just wise, it isn't just accomplished in Jesus, but it's actually rooted in this idea that He loves us deeply. And I know in my life, I need to remember that on a regular basis. I've got to be convinced of that. If I'm going to try to share that with people, if I'm going to try to approach God with confidence and freedom, I'm going to do that only because I know he loves me. He loves me deeply. So Paul is praying that we would have the power and the ability to know Jesus loves us deeply so that the world can see what he's up to. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with a measure of all the fullness of God. If our lives are going to overflow... With everything God has for us, then we're going to be aware of His love for us. We're going to know that, that we can live this out, and the world is going to take notice. So much is packed in that prayer and in that, that part of the letter that Paul's writing. And when I read something like that, I think, wow, that is awesome. I am part of a universe display where God gets to show off what He did through Jesus, and in my life, that's amazing. And the next thing that hits me when I read something like that is how in the world am I going to be a part of that? Because I actually, I'm genuinely asking, I don't know how to be a part of that. I can get really confused and think, what, will, what do I do to, to be a part of that? Pra- Paul's praying a really good prayer. I think he's probably a good prayer. He seems like he should be. So hopefully it works. But like, how do I know when that's happening? How do I take part in that? Have you guys ever seen an infomercial? Yeah? You ever been up way too late and you can't sleep and you're like, why am I watching this? This is so ridiculous, like there's this product, I know it's not going to work, I know it's probably going to fall apart, I know I could buy it in two weeks at the clearance rack at some store for much less, but there's something about that little like, ding, and the, the, the way this guy's selling it, and the three easy payments of 49 99 and I just like have to have that, because I'm pretty sure if I buy it right now, and only right now, it will change my life. There are times where I feel like I've heard a a message being preached and something this lofty and this grand and this incredible and this rich was on the table. And I wanted it so badly that if you gave me three easy payments, three easy steps, a formula of any kind that I could write down and walk out, I would do it that week because I want that. Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you try to practice something like that, it doesn't actually result in what you hoped it would? Sometimes I've found that the people who have the formula down best for some of this stuff have hearts that don't really look like what I want my heart to look like. And I've lived that out. So rather than try to give you that kind of experience, I want us to really grasp this. And so I want to give you a warning. It may be something that is a little bit longer for you. It may not be three easy steps or a formula, but God kind of talks to this and he actually speaks through his prophet Isaiah one time and he talks about what we don't want to do in a situation like this. This is found in Isaiah chapter 29, 13. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they've been taught. So they're saying all the right stuff. They look nice, they're they're doing all the right stuff, they're checking all the boxes, they're here in the right way, but if you take an examination of the inner part of who they are, their heart and my heart, we're pretty far apart. And I don't want that. I want the heart that Paul was describing. I want that overflowing, wide and deep and high and loving, I want the richness to dwell, I want the spirit, I want that. I, I don't want to do the formula. And so I want to do this morning what I think will take us away from the formulaic and and into something a little bit deeper, uh, something a little bit more helpful. I want to go where Jesus went when he was trying to help his disciples live this kind of life. Jesus has spent three years with this hodgepodge of people that he's collected around him. And one of the things I love about this group of people is they look like they have nothing in common, like they have no business being in the same room with each other whatsoever. And he's taken these uh, these fishermen that, that seem to be not that good at fishing, but they keep doing it and he's taking this tax collector that's probably stealing from people, and he he works for the government, and he takes this guy that actually doesn't like the government and kind of wants to overthrow it, and he he takes these brothers that kind of just seem to follow each other. You're not even sure they want to be here, but after three years, he's got this collection of people, and, and outside of these guys, he's got this whole group, this cloud of people around him who are following. The only thing they have in common is that they left their life for Jesus, and he's about to leave them, and he's trying to foreshadow what's about to happen, and He's talking his followers through some stuff, and how could you ever give them the picture, the real picture of what's about to take place in his life? Because we know what happens. We've read the story, and I think some of us are still trying to figure out what took place. And so there's a moment where he gathers these people in the upper room of of a house, and he's talking to them, and he's saying, guys, I'm I'm about to go. And what they couldn't know is that when he says, I'm about to go, he's about to go, (laughs) He's going to be arrested after preaching some pretty in-your-face stuff and he's going to be put on trial and he's going to be uh, mocked and hit and made fun of and he's going to be led up to a hill and he's going to give his life in front of all of them and they're going to be wondering, "What, what just happened to the movement we joined? And after three days of confusion and turmoil and darkness something that never happened in this way before happens. He, he would rise again, and, and then people would respond, and actually creation would respond. There would be earthquakes, and there's this moment where this, this overpowering ceremonial veil that has kept us from God, people separated from God, is just torn, symbolically to show that, that God and people aren't separated anymore, that through the work of Jesus Christ, his, his plan is enacted, and now we can approach God with freedom and confidence. And Jesus would spend time with some of his followers, and then he would leave the spirit in his place and he would ascend. I just said all that. I still don't know what half of it means. How could his believers, his followers, his disciples know anything about how to live through that, but yet he's trying to prepare them. And so while he's trying to prepare them for it, he takes them to the side and he takes them in their mind's eye to a vineyard. And that's kind of weird to me because I don't know a whole lot about vineyards. But apparently, that was meaningful for them. He would take them to a vineyard in their mind and he would say, Okay, listen. And he would paint a picture for them and he would tell a story like he so often does. And he starts this story out like this. He says, Listen, I'm the true vine. And if I were there, I'd be like, Okay, that's really weird, Jesus. I mean, you're the true vine. Check. Good. Now what? But what Jesus is trying to say is something he said multiple other times before. He's saying, Listen, I'm it. I am where life comes from. Another time, he actually said it this way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no person can come to the Father except through me. I'm I'm the door, he says another time. One time, he actually almost got killed because people asked him who he was, and he answered with this phrase that sounded like something they knew about. He said, basically, I am. I'm the one. I'm God. And so Jesus starts this out by saying, listen, in this whole imagery, in this picture, you need to understand it all starts with this. I am the true vine. I'm the source of life in this vineyard. Okay, now what, Jesus? Well, I'm the vine, and my father is the gardener. So if I'm the vine, I bring the life. My, my father's the gardener. He's up to his business in this place. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it'll be even more fruitful. So there's this picture of a vineyard, and it's, it's got branches that are doing nothing. And these branches are not bringing any grapes forward. These branches don't have any life in them. They're actually becoming a problem because if a branch doesn't produce anything but it steals energy or is diseased and it causes the spread of the disease, you don't need that in your vineyard. So it's gonna be taken out and it's gonna be thrown away. And Jesus says that happens in this this group of people that's gonna happen. I think Jesus is also trying to tell us about our life spiritually. In our life that's gonna happen. So when we start to treasure God above all else, he'll start to remove some of the things if we'll allow him, if we'll partner with him, he'll start to remove things that we shouldn't be treasuring that are causing no life to grow in us. And you guys know what that feels like, right? Maybe there's a relationship that you know, you just, it's not good, it's not creating life. Maybe there's a lie that you've believed for a long time. That won't, that won't result in fruit or life. Maybe there's a decision you make or a pattern of decisions you make. Maybe it's such a pattern that it's actually almost an addiction now. No good's coming from it, and we know that. And God's saying, listen, in that place, that branch is not producing anything good. It needs to be removed for the health of the vine and the vineyard. Then he says something weird. If this is a type of cutting that removes dead things, there's another type of cutting, apparently, that takes something good and makes it great. This takes this place that's starting to to sprout a little bit of good, and it, it just blows up. For some of us, this was a compassion experience where we went through and we heard these stories, and something started to well up in us. Maybe it's been a long time since we felt anything like that before. And we had this compassion. And we thought, oh man, that feels, that feels good. It feels strange, it feels good though to care about somebody else. Maybe for some of you, it was almost scary. There's a moment where you're like, this is just a stupid iPod. I'm in a trailer. What am I doing? But there's something good starting to happen. And then your kids came out with multiple packets. And in that moment, God was taking something good and he was cutting it and making it even better because you're trying to figure out how you're going to put $38 in your budget. Some of you had a whole gaggle of kids and you brought them out and they each had a packet. And you thought you were going to pick from that and pick one. And they thought you were going to support the entire village. And now you're supporting a whole village in somewhere you didn't even know existed anymore. Because God has taken something good, the compassion that started to well out, or that grace for somebody else, or that hope, or that life that you started to feel, and he started to prune it a little bit, which is uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good to have pruning take place, but in its place can grow something way bigger and better than you ever thought. Jesus says that happens. That's what the gardener's up to. That stuff is normal when God's at work. It can be even more fruitful He says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. I don't know fully what this means, but I think what he's trying to say is, listen, in the process of this pruning process, these guys in the room had been through it already with Jesus. You guys, I've spoken this word to you. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to take away some of the fear that happens when God is working on our hearts. Sometimes for me, when God's messing with my heart a little bit, I start to feel like maybe my salvation's in jeopardy. Like maybe if he's up to something in my life that I've totally screwed it up, it's beyond repair. I wonder if he's trying to say, "Listen, you guys are already in the in the work; you're in the process, so just stick with it a little bit." And then he continues, and he helps us understand something so powerful. There's this uh, there's this truth that hit me way too late in life. I wish I would have understood it sooner. When somebody smarter than me, or someone I respect, repeats something over and over again, I should pay attention. I used to read this next passage and get kind of annoyed because Jesus keeps saying the same word over and over again. And I'm like, Jesus, you're the creator of the universe. Maybe you could have been more creative in the words you used. But if he's trying to to get me, sometimes a thick-headed person, to understand something profound, he might say it over and over again. He starts to say this word, remain. Remain in me as I also remain in you. And that word remain isn't really that fancy. It's not really that cool until you see it in this context. Remain is often translated as abide or dwell, stay. It has this idea that like, if you would just stay, if you would slow down, if you would be planted in a place, if you could just spend time with, if you could just kind of nestle up to, to, if you could be here, intentionally create space for this, then, then it becomes even more powerful because that word that I'm supposed to do, Jesus promises to do. If I will remain in him, if I will dwell with him, if I will be next to him, if I will stay with him, if I'll be patient in the process that he's putting me through, if I will walk with him, if I'll I'll remain with him, he'll do that with me. And that's really good to hear because there are some times where I wonder if I haven't put Jesus through so much that he's about to jet. And if I haven't been to the point where I've just done one too many things to make him not want to remain, but he promises us. If I'll remain with him, he'll remain with me. That's such good news for me. Then he tells us a little bit about how this works. He says, No branch can bear fruit on its own. You have to remain with me if you want to bear fruit. So I'm the vine, you're the branch, you remain in me, I remain in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, when I was growing up, anytime I saw fire, I assumed hell was involved. I don't know if that's true in this passage, but for me, I don't know if we have to go that far. That might be talking about our eternal destiny if we're not careful, or if we live a life outside of God. Maybe that's it. But for me, there's actually something way more immediate that's applicable. Because I have walked for days and even seasons of my life where I did not remain in God. Have you ever tried to love people who are annoying when you're not connected to God's heart? Have you ever tried to parent your children when you haven't been remaining in God? Have you ever had an experience in a line at Black Friday shopping when you have not been remaining with Christ like you should have been? I promise you, if you're like me, you find out very, very quickly that your resources are not up to the task. And if you're not careful, you'll start to feel like a branch that starts to wither. And I'm not sure this is a threat that Jesus is making as much as it's a reality he's describing. If you don't remain in him and yet you try to accomplish fruit in life, if you try to make the kind of life you want to see happen, if you try to change people for the better, if you try to make your home a better place, if you try to be a better husband, father, mother, friend, sister, it's not going to go very far because he's the true vine and life comes from him. And a branch that isn't connected to the vine just isn't of use anymore. And not only that, if it's got something unhealthy going on with it that is the absence or the opposite of life, it's actually threatening to damage the rest of the vine. It needs to be thrown away in the fire and burnt because we can't have that around. There are moments where I feel like parts of my life are like that. Like, I just don't want that here. I need to remain in God so that I don't have to experience that. I need every bit of of God I can get in my life to see fruit happen. Then Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. I used to think that when I heard phrases like this that God was going to give me magic prayers. And I really kind of want that, because have you ever prayed bad prayers? I have prayed a ton of bad prayers in my life, and I'm really glad that I was either bad at praying or God knew better than I did, because I've prayed for crazy stuff. I look back now, and I'm like, God, thank you so much for not answering that prayer the way I wanted it to be prayed. This has felt most... um, concretely for me, I guess, when I look at the woman I, have, I got to do life with. Because I remember as a teenager seeing people in my life and I thought, God, please let me marry that person. Oh my goodness. For both of us, praise the Lord, God didn't answer my prayers. That person will be cursed with me for the rest of their life. Are you serious? God knows so much better than I do so that I don't want some of my prayers to be magic. I don't think that's what God's after here. I don't think that's what he's saying to us. I think something much more powerful is actually taking place, better than magic prayers. He says this, you ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you, but only if you remain in me and my words in you, which to me says something even cooler. To me, it looks like Jesus is saying, listen, the things you want, the things you desire, the stuff you chase, the stuff you're obsessed with, the stuff you might pray about if you stay disconnected from me. Isn't there part of you that doesn't really want that stuff? Isn't there a part of you that actually knows there's a better, bigger, fuller life out there for you than that? Isn't there a part of you that wonders that if God would grant that prayer, you would actually know at some point you'd be unfulfilled again? Because Jesus says, if you remain in me, I think, this is what he's saying, your heart will start to change. Maybe even not just actions on the outside, but desires inside. Wishes inside will start to look so much different than what they look like now that you'll start to actually hope for and wish for and pray and breathe out the desires of a a person that's been changed by God so much that your your prayers won't be magic. They'll just line up with God's heart. And they'll be so aligned with God's heart and so good for you and so fruit-bearing in your life and the lives around you that God will have no problem answering those prayers. He wants to answer those prayers. He's waiting for it. He wants to be able to say, absolutely, yes, that will be done for you because now your heart looks a lot more like the heart I designed you to have. If God can do that, if I remain in Him, I really want to know, how in the world do I remain in Him? How do I be the kind of person that stays connected to Jesus in this way? Because I want that too. I told you I didn't want to give you a formula. I don't really like the idea of just giving you three easy steps, although I know that's helpful sometimes. But I do want to do this. Sometimes I think it's super helpful in my own faith when voices come in and add perspective. When people help me see something a little bit differently. And so there's this voice I want to introduce to some of you maybe for the first time. There's a guy named Gary Thomas. And he wrote a book called Sacred Pathways. And this stuff that he wrote, I don't think, it's not not like scripture. It's not like God breathed necessarily. But man, is it so helpful to help me understand how you all work and how I'm wired Because while there's only one true vine, I wonder if there's a bunch of different ways to express worship to him. So it's gonna get a little weird, but I just wanna have you do something with me. You may not know much about vineyards, as I do not, but I want you to imagine a vineyard. And if all you get out of this vineyard is there's a bunch of rows of vines, that's a really good start. Just go there. I want you to imagine that I take you and eight other people, random number I know, nine people total, to the top of this hill. And you look out and you see fog covered hillside with vines and they're organized in neat rows and you can imagine what's down there and there's, there's a, a really cool landscape in front of you and if I said to you all, nine people, listen, I've cleared your schedules completely. You have no responsibilities, no obligations, no stressors, There's no nobody needs you right now and I know you could use some time. So this is what I want you to do. Take all day and just go into this vineyard. Just spend some time. This is ours for the day. One thing I know is that there would be nine distinctly unique approaches when I said go. One of you, I promise you, would tear off into that vineyard running just because someone said go. You're just going to go. One of you would look at that person and you would think, wherever that person's going, I'm going the opposite direction. There's a lot going on there that I don't want to be a part of. One of you would go tr- immediately to try to find the winery. Nothing spiritual about it. I just know one of you would go find where they press that stuff, right? One of you probably would go, and you would just want to just be in that stuff. You maybe get your hands dirty. Maybe you would start to pick grapes. You try to figure out what's going on with the leaves, and these, these leaves are big. Wow, this is crazy. One of you, you might just stay on the hill. Everybody else is going to go, and you're fine with that. You just want to look over this image that you see in front of you, and wow, this is amazing. While well, Jesus said remain, and he gives this idea of the vineyard, he doesn't say how to remain. He just says make space to stay connected with me. And so what Gary Thomas is saying is, listen, what if there's a bunch of ways to remain in God? What if there's a bunch of pathways to this experience? And so as many pathways as there would be to experiencing a vineyard, what if there's that many for experiencing worship to God? And I think this could be really helpful to you as it's been to me. So I want to go through some of these that he suggests and see if it's not helpful. And I'll tell you why in a couple minutes. The first is naturalist. This is the person that, that they experience God in nature. If you're a person that consistently can look back in your life and say, wow, God really got a hold of me. He got my attention when I was in nature. I think everybody appreciates a sunset or the ocean or all kinds of stuff, but I think these people are just wired to connect with God in nature. So you might be that. If you feel like nature is calling for you recently, not that kind, the other kind where you need to go out in nature, that might be what what God is trying to get your attention with. And you might be wired that way. Another one is the sensate. Now, I was misinformed at one point. I thought this was what Mr. Miyagi did. And I thought that'd be a really cool kind of worship, which I should not do, probably. Turns out it's different. That is actually a person that connects with God through, like, multi-sensory experiences. So you're a person, maybe, that was in this room during worship, and you were just looking at the lights and the fog and hearing all of the sounds, and you're like, this is awesome. And you, you love the idea of incense being in worship, and you love just being able to experience God with all of your senses, and when you look back on life, you kind of associate those God moments with some of those things you were feeling and sensing and, and had just overwhelming in your life. And that, that's part of how you're wired. And I think that's cool. we have got a few more people that are the traditionalists. And you guys get a bad rap sometimes because you're the people that are like, why do we have to change anything? Why do we do all this different stuff? It's always been this way, which is never true, right? It's never always been anyway. But it feels like if you're rooted in things that are older than you, there's something more trustworthy about it. And I get that because some of this newfangled stuff that we do doesn't always, we don't have the assurance it's going to last. And and maybe we're not positive it's good for us. And and so you like to go back to things that have lasted for a while. And there's nothing wrong with that. You like to stay rooted in in prayers that have been around for a while and songs that have been around for a while and traditions. And you love the Christmas tree going up at a certain time. And that's fine. That's part of how you're wired. Some of us were ascetics. Ascetics like to be alone and they like to be away from people. If you were a person that was taken to that vineyard and you were an ascetic, you would try to find an old church on a hill a little further away from everybody, and you could just stay there and be quiet. And that's how you're designed. A little caveat, if you're a parent of young children, you might feel like you're an ascetic. You just need a break. (laughs) But some of you might be actually ascetics. You might just need to separate yourself a little bit. For some of us, we're activists. We can't imagine worshiping and following God if it doesn't involve being a part of some kind of change. Because the world is not as it should be, and I can identify three things that need to be different, and I want to be a part of it, and that's my cause, and we need people like that. That's awesome. That's a part of how you're wired to worship God. You can approach God with confidence and freedom and try to provide that for everybody else. You're activists. Some of us are caregivers, and it's similar, but it's it's a little bit different than activists. You're the person that always finds yourself next to someone who needs help. When you read Scripture and you hear about a Jesus who came alongside a blind beggar, you think, that's the God I want to follow. That's the heart I love in a a God I want to follow. You love caring for people. And you feel most connected with God when you're connected to people that need him in some specific way or need some sort of mercy or help. And that's awesome. That's so good for us. Enthusiasts, these people are some of my favorites because I am not one of them. And we need them. An enthusiast is the person that makes everything fun and exciting. They like to celebrate things. They come up with holidays that aren't even holidays because they want to party. And that's awesome. We, we have enthusiasts on the stage sometimes. You may have seen one or two of them up here earlier. It was awesome. They're the people that no matter what worship song is on, they love it, and it's the best thing that's ever happened. And they're the ones that are always trying to get up here, even though we don't let people up here. They want to be up here, right? Traditionalists are in the back, like, you can't go up there. That's not how we worship. We can't do that. That's too close. Enthusiasts, you love it. You're jumping around. Your hands are raised. Other people are like, I don't know if I have BO. You don't care if you have BO. You're just raising your hands and jumping around. You're looking at me with my hands in my pockets thinking, what's wrong with that guy? I thought we were worshiping God, creator of the universe. Get your hands out of your pockets. We need enthusiasts because they actually help us remember that what we're doing really does matter that much. And they help bring emotion into things because God created emotions, and that's awesome. And we need to be excited about what God's doing in the world. Some of us, we're contemplatives. And no offense, but I like to compare you guys to crockpots. Because you take in what's around you, and you just let it simmer a little bit. Sometimes you're the person we have to kind of scoot along a little bit because you're taking too much time. But you know what happens? When you observe and you take this stuff in, you're the person in a conversation that out of nowhere comes this like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, they've been thinking about it for about three weeks. It's been crockpotting in there because they've taken all this in and they've reduced it down just like you do with good food to its essence. And it's rich. And we need people like that that can do that. Now, sometimes, like I said, we need those people to move on a little bit because they're getting stuck. But that's, that's a huge part of the church. We've always had contemplatives who can stand away a little bit and say, what about this? Intellectual. These are people that when they hear the, the passage, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, they're always the one lobbying for mind, right? They're like, don't forget your brain. And they're the ones who like charts and they try to figure out who God is exactly. And they love when you figure out a new meaning for a word in Scripture. And some of us are like... Just bottom line it, who cares? Why would you study that for 17 hours? And they're like, you don't understand. I now understand something new. And people don't understand why they're so excited about understanding something new, but it's, it's how they're wired. They love to know more about God and the world he's given us and how things are supposed to work. Why do I bring all this to our attention? Well, for me, when I look at a, at a list of things like this and I start to find myself on it, I actually took an assessment this week. And it showed me that I was aesthetic and intellectual. Those are my top two. And that my third one was naturalist, which means I'm not even supposed to be here today. I'm supposed to be in the woods by myself, thinking. No, this is so important, right? Because what God did not do is wire us like this and send us out on our own. What he did do is choose for us as a united body of people that probably have no business whatsoever being in the same room except for Jesus Christ, And he pulled us all together and decided that he would show his manifold wisdom found in the mission accomplished of Jesus Christ in a united group of people like this who begin to take on the family resemblance of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I didn't come here and you didn't come here to spend a bunch of time and leave looking like me. We may resemble each other because we take on the love of God, but we came here to look more like Jesus. Jesus. And the world doesn't need a bunch of people like me who are sitting around thinking away from everybody in nature. It needs a bunch of people who understand how to remain in Christ the way they were wired to remain in him, who can then go out into their places of influence and their families and their schools and their workplaces and show who God is, who is approachable, who gives us freedom to to come near to him in the way you're designed to do And so I give this stuff to you because it was a gift to me to understand how I'm wired and to understand how you're wired. So that instead of a room like this that throughout history has at times, tragically, decided that since we can't deal with this stuff, we're just not going to worship together anymore. Or we're not going to get along anymore. Tragically, we don't have to do that. We can look at this and we can say, oh, okay, I love how you worship. It's so different than me. I love how you think, it's so different than me. I love how you care, it's so different than me. I love that you want change in the world. I don't don't feel that, but I appreciate that you do. I love that we can be a group of people who come together and worship to God in our uniqueness, and yet united. And so what I'm going to be praying for as we end our service is this, that you would create space in your life this week Maybe it's going and, and taking this assessment. If you want to take this assessment, it's in our message notes. It's free. It doesn't need your contact information. You just take it and you see this. If you want to read more, there's stuff all over the Internet. You can find it. But maybe it's just you taking a few minutes and figuring out how are you wired. Maybe God designed it and you like this. Maybe you just grew up in a place like this and you didn't like it, so you responded like this. And, and that's part of how God knows how to get a hold of you. But maybe it's just creating a couple minutes in your life to go and take this assessment. Maybe you don't need this. You kind of know how you're wired. You just need to create time in your life. Maybe you just need to go take a walk in the woods. Maybe you need to get away from everybody for a little bit. Maybe you need to celebrate. Like maybe you actually just need to create a party for no reason and have fun because God shows up in those moments in your life. Whatever it is, my prayer is going to be that God would allow you to have that moment with Him, that you could connect with the one true vine because some of us have been kind of banging our heads against the wall trying to figure out how to, how to worship or how to remain like everybody else, and we're not everybody else, and that's all right. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of being with so many unique people. God, in the same room, gathered around you, trying to figure out, God, what does it look like to worship you, to treasure you above all else so that our hearts can change and so that our prayers can change and so that our relationships can change and our homes can change. And God, that you would receive the glory you're due because your plan is amazing. And so God, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would do what we can't do. God, would you give us some, some, some insight or some wisdom? Would you give us some courage? Would you give us, God, even, even some time this week to connect with you, to still just be still before you? God, some of us, we're exhausted. We've been trying to keep ourselves running and we are, we are withering up. And God, we need to go back to you. God, some of us, we've been trying to worship like everybody else, trying to remain with you like everybody else, and we're kind of tired and a little bit frustrated. So God, we find freedom today in the fact that you designed us differently, and that's all right. God, lead us this week as we remain in you, and we take you up on all of your promises, God. We thank you so much that you don't let go of us, that you remain with us. In Jesus' name we pray.